Hello everyone, I'm Dr. Darsh Shah. And I'm Dr. Ultima Shraja. And welcome to Medicine Redefined. A podcast where we will explore the often overlooked but necessary components of health, what we consider to be the fundamentals. We will investigate topics and practices that can give you and your patients the best chance to optimize a healthy lifestyle. It's time to move the needle forward and put the health back in healthcare. Hey everyone, this episode is going to be a rebroadcast of episode 44 with Dr. Peter Valenzuela. Given everything that we've been talking about recently about systemic change, even updating our logo to put an arrow in there to show that the first aid symbol can be dissolved and trying to do away with the old and bring in the new, we thought this would be a great episode to resurface. It's actually in the top 10 most listened episodes on Medicine Redefined. Now, Peter Valenzuela is an MD, he's a family physician, and he's also an executive in the hospital setting. And he's worked in multiple hospital settings, which inspired him to write a comic strip book called Doc Related. And it's about how to fix our healthcare system. Um, And it's pretty comical, but it really sheds on the importance of how much physicians are blinded by. I mean, there's things that he talks about, like electronic medical records, talking about different metrics like RVUs, patient satisfaction, even goes to show that doctors who are the ones taking care of the patients aren't the ones running the ship. We're not taught how to be administrators and how to really view medicine as a business, which unfortunately is. So this episode will hopefully open your guys' eyes, whether you're a physician, whether you're a patient. And really just, again, shed some light on topics that we don't really learn as we grow up or as we go through medical training. So we try to keep it light. We try to keep it fun. It definitely is an enjoyable conversation. And I hope you guys get something out of it. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Medicine Redefined. We have here uh, not only doctor, but comedian, uh, Dr. Peter Valenzuela. How are you doing, Peter? Yeah, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on. And, uh, you know, I I like to think I'm funny, but, you know, some people may not think I'm that funny. It just depends on who you are. You got got voted class comedian, so in right in medical school? That's correct, yeah? Yeah, yeah, I did. I don't know if I should be proud of that or embarrassed, (laughs) but uh, um, it kind of says a lot about what what med school was like for me. Absolutely. Well, the reason we brought you on here, right, is um, for people who know in the last year, I mean, we've talked about not only the issues of healthcare, you write the inefficiencies, kind of healthcare administration, what doctors go through, the reality of medicine, how we can make it better, but really get to the root cause. And you're someone who understands that, has written a book about it, which we'll get to. But I really want to start out with your journey and how you even started thinking about these things. So you started in rural family medicine, is that correct? Yeah, I did. So I, uh, yeah, I did all of my training in Texas and, uh, went to uh, college at UT in Austin, went to medical school at UT Southwestern in Dallas. And then I finished up my family practice training at JPS in Fort Worth and actually went back home to my hometown after I got done with residency, which is a small town in West Texas called Fort Stockton. It's about 7,000 people. And I went back there because I had a, a forgiveness loan, you know, where you go back to a rural area and they pay off your, your debts, you know, and I, since I grew up there, you know, it wasn't that much of a leap for me to go back home. So I went back home and I practiced rural medicine for five years and it was literally rural medicine. I mean, I, I was delivering babies. I was doing EGDs, colonoscopies, tubules, tonsils, appies. I was 
I, something came into the ER and you're on call, you come in, you know, I, I did some nursing home visits. I did home visits. Um, and it was, it was a great practice. I mean, it's all the things that you think about when you're a doctor that at least if you're going to be a primary care doctor, all the things that you want to be able to do. And I love yeah. doing it, you know, and it's funny because the first few years into it, I realized I didn't know a lot about the business side of healthcare. I mean, you know, I, Mm -hmm. I was seeing patients and sometimes I'd be in clinic and the patient would come in all disgruntled. They'd be like, I've been waiting out there for an hour. And I'm like, you know, I've been in my office, you know, kind of waiting for you to be roomed. And so it kind of motivated me to go back to business school and, and get an MBA. And I, you know, through that, I, I got to see a different side of healthcare, right? I got to understand the, the business aspects, the billing aspects, the throughput, the flow, you know, patient service components. And, and I really enjoyed that. You know, and after doing rural medicine for five years, um, I had my loan had already been forgiven and my wife and I reevaluated. We felt like it was time for a change. And we actually moved to still in Texas. We moved to uh, Odessa Midland and I became the uh, assistant dean for clinical affairs for Texas Tech University Health Center, which sounds like a big name. But, you know, it was. It was basically they needed a doctor with a business background. Back then, there wasn't very many people with MBAs that were mm -hmm. physicians, and they wanted somebody that could kind of oversee the clinical operations of of the, of the care centers. And, and we had residents. You know, we had about sixty residents. It was a small site, about sixty residents, forty-five faculty, and and I kind of oversaw that. Gotcha. And I really liked it. You know, it was pretty cool. Yeah. And then I I found myself after about four years. You know, my wife and I took a trip to Seattle. And we did a cruise, an inside passage cruise to, to Alaska. I don't know if you guys have ever been out to, y'all been out to Washington? I have. Yeah. I've been to, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I actually have. It was beautiful. You it's know, cool we place. fell in love with the area. Of course, we were there in the summer and, you know, we thought, yeah. man, this is awesome, right? And so uh, I was fortunate enough to get a job with an organization up there to be their medical director uh, for a medical group of about 100 docs. And, and uh, again, working as an executive, but still practicing medicine. And after about four years of doing that, I started getting kind of the seasonal affective disorder that you met, some people get when you're in the you know Pacific Northwest. And my mm -hmm. wife and I used to, <laughs> we used to kind of fly out from Seattle to Sonoma County to come to the wine country and uh, mm -hmm. fell in love with it, man. You know, Northern Cali is beautiful and, uh, I was fortunate enough to get another job similar as a physician executive for healthcare system and chief medical officer for a medical group of about 150 docs. And did that for about seven years and really still practiced medicine, did a lot more administrative stuff. And uh, we loved it out there. We loved Sonoma County. You know, the people yeah. were great. The group was awesome. But, you know, we, we went through four fires in three years, you know, mm. and we got evacuated. I'm sure you probably saw the Napa and Sonoma fires on the news, yep. you know, and I was in the middle of it. When you're an executive in the healthcare realm, you become the incident command person and, you know, leader persons. And so we had a team of us doing it and it, it got pretty exhausting. And so my wife and I moved from Sonoma County to Sacramento where we are now. I'm the chief medical officer for Mercy Medical Group in Sacramento. It's about 500 physicians. And I still see patients. I was actually in clinic this morning. And okay. so uh, that's kind of been my journey. You know, along the way, I, I I started doing comics. And, you know, I can tell you my comic story when you're ready. But, you know, yeah, it, yeah. 
You know, it's kind of a way you guys do medicine redefined. And one of the things you talk about is resilience and, mm-hmm. you know, how to address moral injury and burnout. And, and that was my outlet. You know, I, I was sitting in a meeting and I'll full transparency. I'm sitting in a meeting and there's a whole bunch of execs, you know, and they're talking about physician satisfaction and how they mm-hmm. wanted the surveys to make sure that the physicians were completing their surveys so that we could see how the physicians were feeling. And I remember one of the guys talking was saying, hey, you know, we got to get our, our survey, you know, uh, participation rates up. You know, we, you know, we're at 60%. We want to get to 75%. And I remember I, during the meeting, I said, so what did we do with the survey responses from last year? Right. Did we make changes? <laughs> you know, did we do something yeah. to make it better? Did we improve the situation for our docs? And the guy says, actually, our our bonuses are based on response rates, not on the satisfaction rates. And I was like, what? I mean, all they cared about was having a certain number of people participate, but they weren't looking at what people were saying when they did it. And I remember looking around going, man, you, you can't make this stuff up. Right. And so I decided yeah. that's going to be one of my first comics. And I, you know, I've always liked to draw. So right. I started making comics. Gotcha. You know? I want to, I want to back up to the point where, you know, I mean, obviously you were a jack of all trades. You were doing EGDs, colonoscopies, OB-GYN stuff, right? That people nowadays, yeah. I mean, you, you, you've got to do a fellowship in order to obviously, right? Or, I mean, yeah. you got to go to a specific residency, right? Whether it's internal medicine, OB-GYN, et cetera. Yeah. But what was the conversation in your head when you started to think about, I want to get my MBA and go to B school, what was that like for you? You know, it, it wasn't a tough conversation for me, number one, because, you know, I was pretty much an independent physician, you know, um, working in a rural area. I worked in a care center with other physicians, but we weren't employed. It was our own practices. And, um, you know, there were some things that I didn't understand a lot, you know, when you're when you start doing billing and, and you start getting denials, you know, and, and then when your patients are saying they're feeling like your your throughput is too slow and you're not really sure how to fix it, you know, and around that time, this was way back, you know, uh, the American Medical Association was, the AMA Foundation was recognizing young physician leaders, you know, across the country. And um, they select 25 physicians um, to the, for this AMA Physician Leader Award. And, and I was actually fortunate to be one of them. At that time, I was, you know, president of the medical society where I was, and I was really heavily involved in healthcare and in medical associations. And when I went to Washington, it was one of those where they, you know, 25 docs are selected. You go to Washington, you get to shake the president's hand or, you know, meet the president, do some lobbying. And it was really cool and inspiring for me because I got exposed to other doctors, right? Young docs. And I got to hear what they were doing. And the stuff that I was contemplating in my head, other people were doing it. And I'm like, well, if they can do it. Why can't I? You know, at the, you know, at the time when I was in private practice or in rural medicine, you know, it was a full-time gig, you know. And I, I, taught, I met some of those people there in Washington, and they said, you know, you can actually get an executive MBA, you know, where you're, you know, you do it at night or you do it on the weekends or, you know, it's, it's remote most of the time. And, you know, all this stuff was relatively new. I mean, this is... 2000, you know, 2003, 4, 2005. I'm aging myself, obviously, but, you know, that's kind of what was going on. And I, I started looking into MBA programs and I found one at Auburn University in Alabama. 
and they had a physician executive MBA program. I see you smiling. You know, I was I was born it. in Auburn. I'm a huge War yeah. Eagle fan. So oh man, go yeah, War Eagle. So yeah, oh, so yeah. I loved actually going out there. You know, Opelika and you know all that parts out there, Tumors Corner. And uh, so I researched the MBA programs for physicians, and you know Auburn's program was you know one of those top ten programs for physician executive programs and uh, MBAs. And so it was one of those. It was a two year program. And about every two to three months, we flew. I'd fly to Auburn, spend about 10 days there with about 25 other physicians from across the country. And we learned about healthcare, right? And then in between, when we weren't physically there, we were doing work remotely, right? Accounting, statistics, all that stuff. And it was cool because in the second year, we flew to London to study the European healthcare system and to do, it was called comparative health systems. And we learned about Europe's healthcare system, like France and, you know, all these and, and, and British and, and, you know, Canadian and other aspects of how they compared to the U.S. and what was different about our healthcare to theirs. And it totally like opened my eyes up. I mean, the stuff that you don't learn, you know, in, in fellowship and in training when you're in medical school and in residency, you get to see the comparison and, and it's eye opening for you. And so when I got back, I thought, you know, I, I, I was still in rural medicine and I thought I want to, I want to try to impact healthcare on a bigger level. So that's when I started doing more administrative work. Peter, I think it's probably worth, uh, you know, most of the folks that are probably going to be listening to this are going to be healthcare practitioners, you know, in the medical field, but there are some people who listen, who maybe don't know the differences, right? Understanding that that's, uh, we don't have the time to visit all the differences, but what are some key things that you might've learned that, you started implementing immediately into, um, you know, your hospital system when you were the, the, the advisor for like the medical group on the admin side. Yeah. I mean, as far as compared to other countries, um, I think for me, it, the, the things that we could impact were really around the patient experience aspects of how you took care of patients and, and really trying to incorporate other aspects like, uh, phone, phone surveys and, and really other coordination of care aspects that we didn't think about, like having the nurse call after a patient been discharged, see how they're doing. This is way back, right? Other other countries have been doing this. The really big things that I would have loved to impact, um, well, I, I shouldn't say I didn't because I, I came up with a couple of ideas, but there, it was the fact that number one, you know, the other countries had universal healthcare system, right? So mm -hmm. everybody got taken care of. You know, when I was in Texas, there was, uh, I think it was like 28% of, Texans at that time had no health insurance. I mean, it was statistically crazy. You know, the second part was around pharma, right? Pharmaceuticals in, in, in other countries, they don't, they negotiate with the government for their rates, right? And so the pharma is paid for through the through universal healthcare system. It, it's not the skyrocketing prices that we have here, right? Because they're negotiating with the, with the government in other countries. And, you know, on the plus side, it keeps costs down from a medical standpoint and medications. And, and, and for the pharma industry, they actually don't mind that because back then they were spending millions of dollars with, with marketing reps and, you know, farm reps and, and commercials on TV and everything. In other countries, they don't have to do that very much because they've already got guaranteed, you know, a, a customer, which is the government, to help them with that. And so... Those were some of the big things that I found really eye-opening. And, 
And the things that I brought back home to me, home with me, were the things that I could try to control, like chronic disease, care management, patient satisfaction. And then I started working, we started working on contracts, like uh, with the VA hospital was one. And then when I went into academics, it was with the uh, university where we provided total care, right? It was like a global care. Like we will give you um, this um cafeteria plan of offerings for what we can provide for you, i.e. preventive services, these basic labs, this kind of care. And and we just want a, like a per member per month rate, advanced payment each month, and we will take care of all of your people. I I want to follow up on that, the, just the concept of the whole universal healthcare, right? I mean, there, there are a lot of nuances to that, that uh, again, I don't think we have time to, but I think for, for those who might be neophytes and have a limited understanding, they might just come back and argue, well, part of the thing is like, one of the things that we do is unnecessary testing, right? Let's just use that as an example, right? Uh, imaging, let's just take for MRI, for example, right? In that type of model, for, for those who don't know, um, the necessary things get prioritized, right? And so in today's world, where everything's about instant gratification, um, you have 10 second clips might be too long to watch, right? It's got to be in five second things. You got to get your message. We want the information now. Actually, we want the information yesterday yeah. and we want it immediately, right? And so when you have those conversations with individuals, right? Maybe even at the patient level, how, how do you counter that point? How do you explain that? Hey, listen, maybe like this is still better for the greater good. Like, how do you have that? Yeah, that's a great question, you know, and, and I think that all of us struggle with that on a daily basis, right? You know, we're, we're caught in, in, you know, I, I'm kind of, I'm starting to allude to my book, but I, I had chapters where I've included that. I have a chapter dedicated to patient satisfaction. And, and in the chapter, I talk about what is the difference between making the patient happy and doing what's best for the patient, mm -hmm. right? And I think all of us struggle with that, right? You can have a patient that you did everything right on. You, hmm. you took care of their cancer screen. You checked their quality metrics. You checked their hemoglobin A1C. You made sure that their home situation was great. And they could leave there and go on Yelp and just thrash you, right? Uh, you know, I didn't feel like he listened to me. I told him that I needed this test done, and he said no. I, you know, I... I'm, I'm only great when I have certain medications and he wouldn't give it to me. And, and it's tough because they can do this now. You know, the, the world win is very consumer driven, which is fine when it's regulated appropriately and you're able to participate. But it makes it really challenging when you're a physician and someone is saying things about you. And HIPAA doesn't allow us to go back on and say, actually, this person wanted narco and yeah. we wanted an MRI and they, it wasn't justified. We're not allowed to do that. Mm -hmm. It's not a level playing field, right? We can get trashed as physicians and clinicians. We're not allowed to trash back, not like it would be the right thing to do, but we can't defend ourselves. That blows my mind, by the way. I was telling my yeah. co-residents that after I was reading your book and they're like, wait, what? And I was like, yeah, you cannot leave a review on cannot. a review unless you get consent. That's insane. Yep, yep. I mean, and, you know, I know that we're, we're what's so difficult for me when we talk about healthcare systems, our system in the U.S. is so regulated, right? I mean, you might have heard me say, we have 1,700 quality metrics, you know? We have, you know, 57, you know, HEDIS-related categories, and we have all kinds of things that we deal with 
that we are required to, right? There's, there's, it's no surprise that our charts and our documentation are three to four times longer than charts you would find in Europe and France and London and others, because half or two thirds, even three quarters of what we're doing is to comply with everything else we need to do to provide good care. And so patient satisfaction, I'm gonna circle back, is, is it's a catch, right? Because you wanna do the right thing for patients, but the way we currently measure it and with social media and, and the consumer driven market we're in now, it, it's gotten really um, misconstrued. Yeah, absolutely. And I was, you know, I was taking notes as I was reading your book. And one of the things that stuck out to me, right, when you talk about patient satisfaction, meaning the doctor typically does what the patient asks, hey, doc, okay, okay. pediatrics, especially when I was rotating three years ago in pediatrics, right, and you'd have grandmothers come in and say, oh, it's an ear infection, it's probably viral, I want an antibiotic, I want an mm -hmm. antibiotic. And you say, okay, fine, I'll give you the antibiotic, right? Patient satisfaction, you're making them happy. But does it actually correlate to health? And that answer is no, right? I mean, in your book, you you, you talk about how they're more likely to be admitted and even die if the patient satisfaction score is higher, right? <laughs> I mean, that's something that we don't even think about, really. Yeah, and you know, and I don't want to, I don't want to do a, you know, just draw a big, broad, general conclusion saying if you you really love your doctor, you're at high risk. That's not the message here. I think what the message is based on studies and research is that patients who tend, who may get everything they think they need might put themselves in harm's way inadvertently. And that is a gap, right? I mean, somebody could say, I, you know, I, I've got this cough and I really feel like I need a, a CT scan. And you're like, you know, it's probably a viral bronchitis. You're going to be okay. No, no, no. I had an uncle who had lung cancer and I'm really worried about it. Then you order a, a CT scan of their lungs and guess what? One of the lymph nodes is a little big and you see maybe a small calcification. Now what do you do, right? You got to go biopsy it. Do you watch it? Do you do further scanning? Do you scope? It becomes this cumbersome cycle of, you know, trying to do what's best while also in other countries, to your point, um, maybe not doing so much, you know. And, and I think people, when we talk about the U.S. healthcare system compared to other systems, you know, others always call it socialized medicine. We don't want socialized medicine and it's not, I don't, I don't like, the, the term seems to be derogatory, but we lose sight of the fact that, number one, everybody gets care. It's a right for people in other countries. Here it is not. And number two, they use data so much to the point where they say, statistically speaking, this condition in this age group has, you know, this likelihood of being better or worse if we do this. And so they've used that to make decisions. In our country here in the U.S., patients don't want to hear that, right? If they feel like they need something, they want it, right? And that is the gap. I mean, I, I can tell you one of the things that was eye-opening for me when I was getting my MBA and I was in the U.K., and, and we were talking about dialysis for patients with chronic kidney disease, you know, end-stage renal failure. And they said, you know, once a patient is a certain age here, we don't offer dialysis anymore. And I remember hearing, and it was like, 75 or something, right? And I remember hearing it, it was shocking to me. I'm like, oh, you don't offer dialysis? They're like, no. I mean, no, because, you know, there's statistically, dialysis has not 
it doesn't prolong life and quality of life to this level. And so when we we have seen that once a person hits a certain age and they're put in dialysis, they tend to live a year or less and it's the cost outweighs the benefit. And so we no longer do that. If you said that in this country, it would freak people out, right? Right. Nobody wants their grandmother to not qualify for an, for an extra test or, or a procedure or something like that. But, you know, again, this is all controversial. You know, I'm being provocative just saying this right now. Hopefully I don't you guys don't get hate mail for me. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It, you know, I think that's important, right? This is this is kind of the situation that we're dealing with. And I think it's important to discuss. The other thing that, you know, you, you talked about resilience and burnout and I think for a long time, the frustrations that physicians have, I mean, Darsh and I are still early in our careers, but, you know, we've had plenty of attendings and, and mentors talk about some of these frustrations where your practice is being dictated by the insurance. You're mm-hmm. talking about pharmaceuticals and all kind of kind of stuff. And we're in a day today where, again, we go back to this, the paternalistic point of view where the physician says what you do with that. That's no longer, we don't have that today, right? Mm-hmm. I love it when patients come in extremely educated and they've already read up the procedure. They've watched a YouTube video of what it is that I'm going to do. And they ask these insightful questions. I love that. The difficulty becomes when they start dictating the care and they don't have an in-depth and nuanced understanding of why something is not good or something is good. Right. And that also contributes to this moral injury and the burnout that you're talking about, because now there's one more person that you have to kind of try to fit that into a 15 minute visit, why it's not a great idea to do. So I guess the million dollar, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I agree. I was just saying, yes. yeah. So, you know, the million dollar question then becomes is what's the solution, right? Like <laughs> how do we balance that patient satisfaction with the experience? You know, how do we do that? Yeah. Now I, first I, I feel your pain, believe me, you know, and I think one of the things to point out is this isn't to say that, you know, to your point, this isn't being paternalistic. Um, this is really saying, how do we partner with our patients mm-hmm. to mutually inform them in what is something that, that we could do together? Because I'm, I'm a primary care doc. A lot of, even today when I was in clinic, I, I sat with the patients and I'm like, we can do this or we can do that or we can do this. What do you think? What are you most comfortable with? What's your situation like? It wasn't me saying, I'm going to prescribe you this. Mm-hmm. You're going to go do this. And I need you to have this done by, no, that's not the relationship we're building. We're trying to build partnerships with our patients in an informed way that improves their outcomes. And that's really important to stress. And I think that when we look at patient satisfaction, we look at patient experience, and Darsh, I know you've, you've read my book, it's really about using the information to improve patient outcomes and improve quality. And I think what we're, well, our problem is we're, we're one-sided on how we measure patient, it's patient satisfaction, right? It's asking the patient directly. But we, what we don't do is we don't ask the caregivers around them. We don't ask the people that partner with them. We don't ask the, the staff. We don't, look at, we don't look at patient satisfaction as it pertains to turnaround times and, and phone calls and, and medications and what they're on. I think we have to look at patient satisfaction not as this is my own opinion, but as a way of gathering data that's meaningful that truly impacts their outcomes, right? And, and I think that's that's unique because we don't really look at it that way anymore. It's really like, what was your Yelp score, right? And you have like maybe three patients on there and two really liked you and one didn't. And all of a sudden you suck on Yelp because your sample size is so small that, that people just are going to think you're not a great doctor. And so I think in our own ways, we should be able to not necessarily dictate, but be able to voice things like, 
listen, patient satisfaction is important. Don't post anything until it's statistically significant. You need at least 40 responses, Yelp, before you post anything about me, right? You need, you need to make sure that you're asking the right questions, right? Let's partner together to make sure we're trying to figure out how to improve the patient. And, and we haven't done that. It's a lot of stuff done to us instead of doing it with us. And we have to get better about that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. You know, I think one of those other things, right, about in terms of getting better at, especially for me as a PGY2, is insurance. Like, oh. well, I, I don't get it. I don't. Yeah. I just, people are like, hey, does this insurance cover this? I don't know. I don't know where to start. I don't know what to do. Um, yeah. When did you start to understand insurance? You know, was it attending? Did you get any education of it before that? No, no. And I think that's a gap, right? I mean, that. When you're in medical school and you're in residency and you're in fellowship, it's really, you're trying to learn the, the clinical aspects of what you do. Sure. And, and I think, unfortunately, when you're in practice, the clinical aspects of what you do become maybe a third to 50% of your overall work. Right. And that's sad. You know, I mean, that's sad because the other 50%, you end up learning in the school of hard knocks, right? You're out there and all of a sudden, you're doing something for a patient and then you get a call and they say, Hey, so-and-so's insurance wants to know why you're prescribing this or why you're sending them here. And that's really your first exposure to wait, hold on. I can't, I can't do what I think the patient needs because mm -hmm. someone needs to approve what I'm doing, you know? And I think that what makes, what makes insurance hard? Number one, I mean, obviously they're trying to avoid expenses, you know, um, but, but number two, they're, they're not doing it in a way that's collaborative, right? I mean, you've got a lot of walls when it comes to insurance, you know, and, and when I say walls, I mean, pre-authorizations, right? I, I, I mean, dealing with denials, I, I mean, you know, all kinds of things that you have to deal with, and especially now with insurance plans, having high deductible health plans, right? Where patients mm -hmm. are paying more out of pocket. So like you said, Darsh, you know, they, you could be in a room with somebody and you go, hey, I think you probably would benefit from, you know, prolotherapy or, you know, something like that. And yeah. and they say, well, how much is it? And you go, I mean, I'm not uh, sure. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. <I> <laughs> you know, and, 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 and our EMRs don't help us, right? I mean, an right. EMR shouldn't just be there to capture your charges and your codes. It should be there to tell you, hey, this person has this insurance and this copay and this deductible, which means their cost for this thing is going to be this dollars, right? And, and the government, to their credit, is moving towards that, right? They're, they're moving to the no surprise billing and cost transparency. So, like, next year when a patient sees you, and, and, and I'll tell you, healthcare organizations everywhere is trying to figure this out. When a patient sees you and they ask what's the cost of something, you are supposed to know what that cost is. And, and I think that's great. The problem is no one knows how to really do that well. And, and it's, everybody's, everybody's freaking out right now because they're like, okay, next year when patients ask us how much something's gonna cost, we have to be able to tell them pretty accurately what that's gonna be. And you know, the EMR's not gonna do it for you. Everybody's trying to figure it out. This lack of transparency thing, I've heard you talk about this before. I mean, it's, just, it's such an important thing. I think about somebody, a close friend of mine, maybe, circa 2011 or something, I think he was like, 
rearranging something, basically hit himself in the nose, ended up getting MRSA and went to a dermatologist and ultimately, you know, had the procedure done, which was necessary at the time, but later got a bill for, I don't know, somewhere in the neighborhood of $1,500. Huh. And, you know, this guy is, is not the person who's just going to cough up his money. Um, and I just remember hearing this story about how ridiculous it was. And, you know, he was just giving examples of, was like, anywhere else that I go, like if I go to, let's say you go to McDonald's or you go to a thing, it says, this is the cost. This is what I want to buy. And I, I use that service, whatever it is. Yeah. Why is that not the way with medicine? And I was like, yeah, that's a great question. Mm -hmm. Why is it not that way with medicine? And, you know, it, it's frustrating even being on the other side of it. And so you brought up prolotherapy, right? So Darsh and I do musculoskeletal medicine. Mm -hmm. um, I do a lot of orthobiologics now, right? So we do a lot of PRP. And, um, you know, historically, it was not covered by insurance. It was cash-based and it was so much easier. Mm -hmm. Now that it is covered by insurance, right? Medicare started covering it in August, 2021. Some of the commercial insurance companies, I have this conversation on a daily basis. I tell them, look, Medicare covers it. Unfortunately, you don't have it. I have no idea what your payment could be. And, and so at this point, I, I keep telling them, like, I need you to go home and call the insurance company and find out what it's going to be. But that's a nightmare for the patient yeah. to try to navigate, right, and get that piece of information. I mean, we have full-time folks doing this, right? But I feel so terrible, like, asking them at the same time. But I don't really know what the other option is, you know? Yeah, and I, I feel your pain. Again, I've been doing this for 20 years, man. So I've, I've got way more frustration than you do right now. <laughs> I bet. But, but all kidding aside, I mean, you made a good point about cost. And, you know, there's, remember, the number one reason for bankruptcy in the United States is medical expenses. It is patients not being able to afford the cost, like you said, 1500 bucks. It, most households, if you ask them mm -hmm. to bring up 1500 bucks nowadays, they don't have it, right? Absolutely. They put on a credit card, they, they pay 20% interest, and they're going to be paying for it forever. Yeah. And, and that's not fair. You know, I, I think that we need to find a way to be able to inform patients of what their costs are. But we need to find a way to, to, to figure out how we keep our costs down and how we do the right thing for our patients, right? And that's, that's, that's a significant gap that we struggle with in healthcare. You know, it, it's, it's tough. No. I remember you talking about uh, an AI called Robin that kind yeah. of captures something. And, and I want to get that later. But you, you alluded to the fact that, you know, EMR systems should be clean. You know, we use Epic and Epic is regarded as spectacular. It has its issues. It's not the best thing. Uh, and, um, you know, are you aware of anything in the works or something like that or are you optimistic that somewhere in the near future, something like that is doable? I mean, I know people out there are smart enough to do that today, but like, what do you, where's your head at on that? What do you think? I mean, I'm optimistic. I, I, I'd like to be optimistic. And, and I think the reason I'm optimistic is because now the government is starting to try to pass interoperability laws, which means we should be able to connect apps and other platforms with each other, right? I mean, you know, Epic's been the big dog, you know, on Cerner, and there's a couple of, of big, big EMRs that have had the majority mm -hmm. of the market, and they've all said, we don't want to play with anybody else, right? This is this is my football, and I don't want to share it, i.e., I'm not going to let other apps or other templates or other platforms come into my my own EMR to gather data or whatever. And, and we need to be able to bust through that, and we need to be able to allow access for for all these platforms and that to work together. And, and that's the problem, right? I mean, I, 
today I was seeing a patient and, and they had been seen outside of the, the care center. And so I went and clicked on their visit when they were seen somewhere else. And it says, this document cannot be seen. It was scanned. Please look for the scan document. You guys know, right? And I'm like, mm -hmm. I'm not going to go look for the scan document for this patient. I mean, I don't have that kind of time, right? And that is, that's what, those are the headaches that we're dealing with right now. And I think that patients don't realize it. Patients assume they all talk to each other, right? Like you said earlier, I mean, I, I made a comic years ago that talks, you know, it's two doctors talking and one doctor says, you know, I can call my pizza place and they know exactly what I ordered last time. And they tell me how much it is. Mm -hmm. He said, but I can't, I can't go into an EMR and see what somebody else did and know, know what I need to do myself. Mm -hmm. I mean, why is it that every other industry has figured this stuff out, but not us, you know? And, and, and I don't, I think that, you know, to some extent people always say, there's going to be disruptions in healthcare and it's not going to come from, from healthcare people. And, and people who are in healthcare don't like hearing that, but I got to be honest, I'm excited about it. If we can't figure it out ourselves, let's look for other people outside of our industry. You know, yeah. some of the most successful, you know, chronic disease uh, uh, um, platforms and other platforms are, are people that came in from the outside and said, let's figure it out. You know, I, I mentioned Robin when I was, you know, in, in the past, when I talk about AI, I mean, there's things like Suki and other AIs that are really great at figuring out things so that we don't have to sit in front of a computer and, and manually put it in ourselves. And we should allow access to platforms like that to be able to talk with the EMRs that we're using. I guess for those who don't know, um, what is it that you meant by that? I, so I know we were talking about ICD-10 codes, but um, if you could just elaborate on what it is that you mean exactly by that. So, so I'll give an example, right? So a GI doc, gastroenterologist, right, uses an, an EMR in their clinic, which might be different from the EMR in their hospital, which is different from the EMR they have mm -hmm. in their surgery center, right? Mm -hmm. And 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 a lot of GI docs I know, they love the EMR in the surgery center because it's more appropriate for their, their type of patients and what they see and do. Whereas other EMRs, they're kind of fillers and not really needing what they need. And, and I think that what we should, and, and they don't talk to each other. So you have to scan the documents and put it into the other EMR and scan that and put it into that EMR. You know, I've got, I, I worked with rheumatologists who worked for years to try to put uh, a hom homunculus in their EMR to be, in the, to be able to draw the diagram and what they did, right? And it took years for us to be able to do that. And when I think about why does it take so long? What is the problem here? You know, what are the restrictions? We need to figure out how to de deregulate or de uh, democratize or democratize what it is patients and physicians need to be able to take care of, of patients better. Does that make sense? Yeah, Sorry, absolutely. Now you're good. Um, so I mean, obviously, Altamash and I are kind of just budding in our career uh, in our career right now. You've been in it for 20 years, so you've experienced both, right? I'm sure you've done handwritten notes, and now you've done yep. the EMR, and that transition. I'm sure, obviously, was a huge learning curve. But let's talk about the pros, at least, of an EMR. What are those things that are like? This is great. This is what EMR should be used for. 
Well, number one, legibility. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, chicken scratch We're, no more. Uh, I remember putting consultants with letters back or whatever. And but you know, not even that could have been. You could transcribe or dictate that and and be able to see that. I think for the most part, it's it's really about reminders and quality metrics and making sure. sure you're doing the right thing. I think EMRs have the capacity to be the most up-to-date. You know, you, a lot of the EMRs actually have up-to-date where you can look something up for a treatment plan for a patient. Um, EMRs have the way to build pathways. Oncologists use them to use pathways on what's the best uh, way to care for this type of cancer. I see. Um, so there's a lot of pros to it. I think yeah. the, problem, the problem is that there we're still not completely aligned with who writes the, you know, who, who writes the, the, the EMR platform and who actually uses it. And we have to get better with that. I can't keep right. thinking about who's, who's writing the code versus who's using it. Right. Right. And so, yeah, I know you talk about kind of the struggles of EMR and kind of what's going on. And you, you kind of just touched on how there's not a centralized system in your ideal world. How would you use an EMR? And well, yeah, I mean, in my ideal world, I would actually have, and, and I've seen this and, you know, Google Glass almost did it. They were pretty close mm. to it. Um, and I, in my ideal world, the EMR would see what I see and would document what I wanted it to document immediately. And, you know, when you use, I don't know if you've ever used Google Glass, when, when my previous medical okay. group, we actually were on, you know, using Google Glass um, and had virtual scribes, it was Augmetics, had virtual scribes who were kind of in the room with you. They're actually in other countries. I think that um, they were, were operating out of India, I believe, but you were wearing the glass, you had the scribe that was connected to you, and you were talking to the patient. And while you were talking to the patient, the scribe was hearing what you were doing, and they were able to capture everything you were doing and also see what you were doing. They had to fill out a, mm. had to fill out a form for that. But by the time you walked out of the room, your note was written, your reminders were already there, the prescriptions were done, and it right. really worked smoothly, you know. And and it started with a morning huddle. You actually had a huddle with your virtual scribe, where they you could see which wow. patients you had that morning, and you could tell you, okay, I'm, I'm going to need this, I'm going to need this, I'm going to need this, and they would they would prep it for you. It was already set. That That's I think, yeah, it, it's awesome. That kind of stuff is it's feasible, right? I mentioned Robin because you know one of the things that we're all stuck with, and to be able to capture insurers and quality metrics is HCC codes and HEDIS metrics and others. And when you're in the room and you have you know Robin there, which is a little platform that's sitting there, and you're talking, they're hearing what you're saying, they're finding the codes, they're capturing all these things for you without you having to look away from the patient and do yeah. this on the computer, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I remember one of my attendings showing it to me last year. I think, I don't know if it was a UCLA, but there's also another AI company out there where they actually have a YouTube demo where you're speaking to the patient, HPI, object, everything's getting filled out as you're speaking. Um, yeah. I mean, just having something like that would just be remarkable, right? In terms of efficiency and actually just focus on the patient. And again, we go back to patient experience, patient satisfaction, I mean, without giving them what they want, those things are going to rise without the admit numbers and the safety kind of going, you know, would go down. Yeah. I want to transition over to another chapter that you write in your book, which is coding. Okay. So I know you already know what struck by an orca is. 
Yeah. But we're gonna do a new <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna do a new edition here. This is gonna be a rapid fire quiz for you, Peter. You ready? Okay. All right. All right. Go for it. What is code W55.41XA? Hmm, that's a tough one. Related. Uh, I don't know. Let's see. Attacked by a mountain lion. Close. Bitten by a pig. Initial <laughs> encounter. <laughs> Initial. I love that. Okay. Consider yourself lucky if you've uh, never had that one. All right, here we go. Z sixty three dot one. Hmm. Let's see. Kind Z of animal related, but not really an animal. Um, that would be. Um, let's see. A cockroach in cockroach in the ear. Almost no. problems in relationship with in laws. Oh, okay. We'll do one more here. Uh, I, I hope your uh, in-laws are not listening. To this. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what I hope right here. Someone's sitting we'll on the couch. Here, here, here's the last one for you, all right? W220.2XD. Hmm. Let's see. You took it down to the .2XD, so obviously mm. that's going to be more dead. It's going to be the right arm. <laughs> um, let's see. It yeah. could involve the right arm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, you're gonna have to give it. To you got it. All right, walked into lamppost. Sub subsequent encounter. So we have over seventy thousand of these, as you read in your book. Most bunch of them are absurd. Yeah, and and, 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 and it is extreme. It it really is. You know, even I was on a call recently where we were, you know, talking about the new regs that CMS has. You know, people have been doing virtual care during COVID. And, you know, one of the things you have to ask the patient is, you know, are you, where, where are you right now? And because number one, they, they want to make sure that before during COVID, they had, they had kind of allowed physicians to be able to see patients wherever they were, i.e. even if they were out of state, you could take care of them. Now that, you know, the pandemic has changed a little bit, it's a little bit more under control. A lot of the states have gone back to saying, okay, you can only take care of patients in this state, right? And so all those advances that we had done, like even us here, you know, you're East Coast, I'm West Coast, and we're able to have this conversation. From a healthcare perspective, a physician cannot do that. Right? A patient, a physician can't do that if their patient is not in the state they're in because you're only licensed in that state, right? Well, now there's a nuance to it. Now we have to ask the patient, where they are, even if they're in the state, are you at home? You know, are you, are you in a clinic? Are you in the car? I mean, it's, it's, it's so random. The questions are being asked around. So are we going to have new codes that we have to say, spoke with patient when they were in their bedroom versus spoke with patient in the kitchen versus spoke with patient in car versus spoke with patient in clinic. I mean, it is, we, we, we go, we go crazy when it comes to finding ways to bureaucratize a lot of this stuff, you know, and, and this is real, right? It's not a comic. It can be a comic, but this is real. We live this world now. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it, it has to be right. Otherwise you lose your mind. I mean, the frustrating part with me, it's here. I have, you know, I'm, I've got your book. Um, I've downloaded it and it's on the docket to do, but um, you know, I'm excited, but I'm frustrated hearing that the 70,000, but I don't have the codes that I need. Like today I, I saw mm -hmm. an athlete, um, you know, he had an injury 
And I, I mean, so in the musculoskeletal world, there's a difference between tendonitis and tendinosis, right? I can't find adductor tendinosis, right? And so I have to have six other things. So yeah. whoever somebody, if somebody goes back and reads like, what is this doc trying to communicate here? They might be able to triangulate the diagnosis with the four other ones that I've put. And, yeah. you know, this is, I think it's, it's incredibly frustrating for providers for, for certain, but also, you know, this comes back, uh, back to the point of when we were talking about the confusion with insurance and lack of transparency on that stuff. Um, I'll share a story with you, you know, uh, a while back, I, I remember, you know, we had, like I had insurance and, and my wife had gone, uh, to see her, you know, her, for preventative care visit and, you know, under the insurance and I understand our benefits extremely well, right? I'm well-versed in that. I know what's covered, what's not covered. It's a hundred percent preventative care visit. And so she went in as a, what a routine visit and, and they asked, oh, how's things going? And they asked a question. And then she saw an uh, advanced practitioner, nothing against them. It's just the person that she saw at the time had the initial preventative code was Z, blah, 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 right? And the secondary code should have been O, blah, blah, blah. However, the person who had coded it had flipped the codes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So now it's 100% coverage under preventative care. But they didn't build that. I get a bill. And I'm like, well, this isn't right. And so, you know, in our family, you know, we have an agreement. I take care of the insurance issues. That's my job. I, and again, I'm a provider. And, but now I'm on the patient side, Peter, I, this happened in October, I remember. And it wasn't resolved until July, but it wasn't that I had to, I don't know how many hours I spent. Definitely wasn't worth 130 bucks or whatever it cost, <laughs> uh, but it was about the principle. It was the principle. Yeah, that's exactly. Right. <laughs> but my thought was ultimately the way we got to the bottom of it, Peter, was that I had went up the, the ladder on the insurance company. And then I had went up the ladder on the actual provider's billing company. And I'm the one who ended up deciphering that, hey, the codes need to be flipped, that the person had, you know, and I had to explain those to supervisors, the supervisors, supervisors. And it, the whole time I was thinking, a person who can't, you know, who can't rub two pennies together and that $130, like they have no idea. They just have to be like, I, I guess I owe you money, yeah. you know, or can I go to collections or whatever? And it just blew my mind. Yeah. You know? And that's a great example, you know, and I'll say two things to that. You know, unless you're in healthcare, you're not going to find that. So your first part was around finding the codes. And I, you know, we talked about our EMR earlier, you know, just imagine you know, just imagine if the EMR said, okay, this is a, a PMNR physician. And so I am going to, I know this is a PNR physician. So the codes I am going to pull up are going to be the most common codes used by PMNR and the most commonly coded codes, right? So that it, it pops up early on what you need, right? Versus me as a family doc, I don't need your codes. I need my codes, mm -hmm. right? Can you imagine if the EMR could actually say, this is a cardiologist, this is a gastroenterologist, this is an OB-GYN, this is a PM&R, this, and, and, and prioritize codes so that you don't spend all that time trying to find it. That's number one, where I think the EMRs can be better. And, and, and I think number two, to your point, and I, I joke about this in, in my book, you know, we have so many rules around not just coding, but the ranking of the codes, because what you put number one makes all the difference in number two, number three, and, and what you're going to do. And, and people don't know this, right? And, and now there's quality metrics around this, which means when you see a patient, you need to make sure you captured that, that, that main HCC code or other first and not others. And, and I, it's so cumbersome and it's so hard to remember, right? Because as doctors, we're like, okay, I treated their knee. 
I treated the back, I treated the headache, I treated some depression, I treated this. And then now you have to prioritize which one is going to be the highest level reimbursement or, you know, the most important from a quality perspective right. to be able to capture that. And, you know, medical school nursing doesn't always teach you that. They just no. want to make sure you captured what you did, you know, but now you have to prioritize it and rank it. And if you don't rank it right, number one, you might get penalized from a quality perspective, but number two, the patient might get a mega bill that they should have never received, right? And, right. and that's one of those things that we have to be better with. And AI can help us with that, you know? That's the kind of stuff we as physicians aren't trained to do or shouldn't be spending all of our time doing, right? And I think what's, what's tough is in the past, like when I was first started, we had coders that actually helped us code, right? So the, the, the CMS rules say that a physician can actually have, an, uh, you know, the physician is responsible for coding, but they can have somebody that can have signature authority to help you code. So there's people well trained to do nothing but this. And somehow along the lines, it became so high risk that most organizations said, no, we're going to leave it to the doctors to do, right? And, and you know, I have a comic in, in my book, and you'll see it, where it says, you know, one of the doctors goes to the administrator and says, I'm spending all my time coding. I mean, what's going on? I need a coder. And the administration says, well, legally, you know, you're responsible for the coding. And the doc goes back to his desk and he's coding and there's a thought bubble that pops up and he says, well, I'm legally responsible to paying my own taxes, but I have an accountant that does that for me, right? To follow my taxes. This is the same way. We actually should be utilizing other resources, other staff, other IT, whatever, to help us do the work that we that needs to get done. You know, there's so many awesome things you said there. And, and a quote comes to mind. I was on a kind of looking into like some contract stuff, diagnostics, education, that kind of stuff. And um, I, I don't know who to attribute this to, but, but I read that, you know, somebody said that, you know, we're training or um, we're educating our, our trainees to be better with patient care, but not teaching them to be better with practicing medicine. And I think what they were getting at is the business of medicine right? All these things that you're talking about, they're really more than 50% of what medicine is in today's world that patients really don't get to see. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I see the solution. Well, there's one way you can tack on extra training on top of my nine years already, Darsh, who knows how many mm -hmm. fellowships he'll do. Uh, you know, you, you did an extra MBA to learn all these things, right? And yeah. in a world with increasing burnout and, and you know, more, you know, moral injury, that kind of stuff, I'm not really sure that's the best solution. Sure. And then the other solution, which you've been advocating for, is to simplify the process, yeah. right? What we're able to do. Um, so I think that's that's kind of what it's got to be. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, and I really hope that we are able to make these changes sooner than later, because a lot of this has really led to early retirements and, and you know, the moral injury and burnout that we're seeing that's, you know, mm -hmm. I don't know what study you read, Tate Chanafelt's done a lot of research on it. You know, we... You know, 54% of physicians, you know, are burned out or have some some level of it. And it's sad to hear that, you know, hmm. and, and hopefully yeah. we'll, we can make some positive changes. I'm Absolutely. really crossing my fingers, right? I'm crossing my fingers trying to be optimistic this will happen. Right. I mean, EMR, early mandatory retirement, right? As you uh, put <laughs> in your book. So uh, we we'll see that. That. There you go, yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. You got great characters. And we'll definitely talk about your book. Yeah. We'll definitely uh, bring up some of the characters and uh, your book late, towards the end of this. Um, but I want to talk about, right? So a lot of what you and Altamash kind of just talked about, you know, kind of breaks my heart a little bit, right? Because there, are, we, we talk about this socioeconomic gap, right? Whereas mm -hmm. 
that $130 bill goes to someone from the inner city, you know, Ultima is trained in uh, Johns Hopkins, right? So inner city Baltimore, where a lot of patients won't have the education to call or understand what's going on. Whereas we, at least as physicians, or even if we're not physicians, we're educated, we, you know, can at least call, have a conversation and try to get that bill flipped because we know about the principle, Mm -hmm. right? And in the last two years, we've had COVID and you were just on Zubin's podcast and he loves to talk about also the socioeconomic gap that we're putting right on in, in terms of communities. Sure. We're seeing a great resignation, right, is what they're calling it, right? We had the Great Depression, Great Awakening, all these different things. But now we're seeing so many people leave healthcare. And I just read an article in The Atlantic where they're saying one in five healthcare workers are leaving. Now, this is either due to mandatory vaccinations or it's due to just, hey, burnout or I don't agree with what's going on. And now I see different opportunity. Where do you see the future of healthcare going, especially with 20 percent of the workforce gone? That's a good question. I mean, it really is. And then I I. I'd like to see healthcare going in a direction that includes social determinants of health. And you heard, mm-hmm. you know, I kind of allude to that in the book. I mean, we as yep. physicians, no matter how hard we work and what we do, we truly touch maybe 10 to 15% of a patient's overall health outcomes, right? The other 80 to 90% are what they do when they're not in our exam rooms, what they do when they're not in the hospital, and what they do, you know, when they're at home or with others, you know? And I think that we dedicate a lot of time and resources and people to capturing all the things that we need to do at the time in the moment when they're in the hospital or in the care center. And once they leave those doors, we say, okay, we're done. Good luck to them. Right. Sure. Hope, sure. Hope that they don't do anything to hurt themselves. Right. And, and that's, that's where I think we could shift money from all these regulatory aspects and quality aspects. And like I mentioned, you know, uh, you know, Don Berwick said, you know, from a quality metric standpoint, we should we need to cut them in half. If we could, if we cut the number of quality metrics that we chased in half, we would save so much money that we could actually resource it to trying to help the patients in different ways. You know, often you, you kind of mentioned the, the, the bill that you got, right? What if we had navigators and financial counselors and others that could walk people through this and, and first get the bill first themselves and see if it's valid? before it comes to you and address it. Can you imagine that? You know, it could happen, right? We lead patients on their own to do what they need to do and we don't guide them through a lot of this stuff. What if we could have dietitians and we could have behavioral health people and we could have social workers and we could have navigators and others that could help the patients when they're not with us so that they don't, you know, they don't keep smoking or keep eating or keep hurting their bodies in some ways that they may not know they're doing. That's, that's where my future of healthcare is. It's in not, uh, yes, I'm worried about the, the great resignation. I'm worried about the physician's fatigue, but I'm, I'm more worried about what's going to happen to patients if we lose so much without thinking proactively instead of reactively. Right. Because our problem is we're all about sick care. We're not about well care, right? And we need to be better about that. Right? Of course, I'm, I'm a primary care doc, so of course I think that way, right? <laughs> uh, now, Peter, I, I love that you said that, right? So that's essentially the mission of our show, right? We talk about how we 
practice sick care and and the mission of of is and, and one of the final questions that we ask every guest which you just answered is how do we add the health back to healthcare mm-hmm. right and and you've beautifully said that and I think about as the year is coming to a close, kind of reflecting about a lot of awesome guests have come out here, all the great things that we've said. I think about something Dr. Amy Shaw recently came on and talked about how, you know, we have evidence to support that, you know, your autonomy with your time, like if you have, a, you know, two to four hours a day of what you can do with that, that's going to contribute, you know, or actually be less likely for you to get that burnout and contribute to happiness in terms of and satisfaction, provider satisfaction. You, know, you you touch on metrics and you've talked about this before. It's a lot of them are unnecessary, which in, in contributes to click fatigue. I got to go through this. I got to review the meds and stuff like that, where something else could have, somebody else could have done that. Mm-hmm. And in that 15 mi- minute visit where I've got to get the x-ray, which takes five minutes. Um, you know, the patient's got to get the person, the, whoever's rooming the patient has to do the, by the time I see the patient, I've got four minutes left. Yeah. And in that four minutes, I need to get a good history. I need to sit down. I want to do some therapeutic listening. So the patient actually feels like something happened. The doctor didn't come in and chart and all that stuff, you know, and, and I think most physicians, you know, I mean, we're closer to our training. I think when we go into medicine, we kind of want to do that. Most people do. Right. And, and then for all the reasons that we talked about for the first hour, that when we can't do that, you know, we start feeling discompassionate. Right. And that even just compounds that burnout that that makes it difficult and it leads to EMR, early mandatory retirement, yeah. like you guys are talking about. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm super excited that uh, that you're optimistic about this. It, it inspires me even more. I think that, again, we're early and and, you know, we see people who are out of us are doing it the right way and and actually changing. And and one of the things that you mentioned before is it's not going to it's not going to get fixed if people who are at the top, people who are leading, who are creating this policy are, are not in medicine. They haven't practiced clinical medicine like you have for the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. So the, sorry, this is a long-winded question, but you know, the, <laughs> the question for you is how do we get more folks to get in those leadership roles, do the things that you're doing so that you can help influence that change from the inside? Yeah. Well, first I would say that you guys are already impacting healthcare and you're already helping to inform and educate other people as to why this is important. So, so I will, you know, I'll, I'll actually clap for you guys and, and say that I appreciate the effort that you guys are taking to do this because it takes passion to try to let other people know what healthcare is like and how we can make it better. So I'll begin with that. I think the second part is trying to get more exposure into rooms and tables and committees where decisions happen. And, and for the most part, I, that's been a gap for us as physicians. And it's usually because we're so focused into the patient care realm that we don't have time to do the other part. And so it has to be a conscious effort to say, I am going to participate in this ethical discernment around whether we should continue to have this service within our medical group. Or, you know, I am going to um, work with the manager to try to build something that's going to improve care. So we can, you, you don't have to necessarily have an MBA, but you have to have a desire to make positive change where you are. And, and, yeah, and I think for, for us as physicians, we, we just, our focus has always been about the patient. Hmm. And that's great, but it doesn't get you what you may need in the long run if other people are making decisions who don't have clinical backgrounds. And in my book, you'll notice this often, I know Darsh, you probably know this. I have a chapter mm-hmm. on leadership, physician leadership and communication. Yeah. And there's a lot of statistics that show 
that healthcare organizations that are run by clinicians, physicians, APPs, nurses, whatever, people who have clinical backgrounds, statistically, those organizations perform better from a quality perspective, outcomes perspective, even revenue and performance perspective. And it is because exactly what you said, exactly what you said, Altam, you need people at the higher tables to help make decisions, you know? And, and until we're, until we sit there, you know, the old saying, right? If you're not, if you're not at the table, you're probably on the menu. That is our problem. We don't, we don't want to be on the menu. We, we want to be at the table. Right. Yeah. I've got the note right here. Hospital quality score is 25% higher in physician run hospitals. There you so. go. All right. Absolutely. Boy. Absolutely. Another dual star for Darsh. That's right. Yeah. I took, I took some notes and honestly, I, I really want to talk about your book here because, um, it's absolutely fantastic. I mean, for me as a PGY2 and someone who, so let me let me preface it by this. I just wrote a tweet recently, right? That pre-meds do not understand medical school. Med students don't understand residency and residents have no idea what attending's life, which essentially full circle, pre-meds who want to go into this field have zero idea what medicine truly is, right? And I think your book really highlights a lot of those issues that we should understand early on, you know, if, if we want to get into this field and how we can combat those things. Cause I think you offer a lot of great solutions. So I, I really want to thank you for that. I mean, five stars all around. Congrats to you. I mean, for becoming a bestseller, right? You're, I think you were number two as of last week yeah, on that yeah, on yeah, list thanks. on Amazon. So amazing stuff. Absolutely. So congratulations to you. And the comics are great. They're funny. I love the characters. There's a Dr. Sean there. Uh, it's not me, but uh, <laughs> it's somebody else. Um, yeah. But Dr. Sean. Yeah, female Dr. Sean. But it's 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 honestly great. And you know, if you are in the healthcare field, this is a book that you definitely should read. And again, it's called Doc Related. But Peter, I really want to ask, what's next for you? Yeah, well, we'll see. If I don't, this book doesn't get me fired. I'm hoping. <laughs> <laughs> no, all, all kidding aside, I, I really love what I'm doing now because I'm again, I'm I'm still, I'm still practicing. I, I'm still leading, you know, from a medical group standpoint, and and my hope is to continue to do what you guys are doing, which is inform and educate people, and and use for me comics in a satirical way of doing it because it's. It's more digestible, you know, and that's kind of, you notice I quote Malcolm Gladwell because he does say that, you know, when you can use humor to talk about truths, right, in, in what's happening, people are a little bit more willing to hear it, you know, and we almost have to make fun of ourselves for others to go, are you kidding, man? Is that really happening? Or did he just make it up? And you go, no, that stuff happens all the time, right? And yeah. we have to be able to, to, raise the flag and alarm people and alert people as to what's broken and try to work together to make it better. Absolutely. I love that, Peter. Thank you so much, man. And, um, you know, like, like, like I said, I have downloaded it. I've got it read and, and, you know, my excuse is even though you didn't ask for one, I've got a 13 day old daughter at home. So, you know, I'll read it. Maybe I'll read it to her starting young. So she understands what the, what's the issues with the healthcare system. Hey, congratulations. No, thank man, you. That's great. Thank you. Yeah, congrats. Um, but I want to thank you again, you know, you know, for taking time to come out here, for writing this important stuff, for constantly talking about it, for advocating, um, and, and, and just being a role model, right? Role model for folks like us, for, for kind of the next generation. Um, and, you know, we're, we're excited to continue following you. Hopefully there'll be a next book in the future, like you said, you know, if, if, if everybody loves it. And, um, you know, the last question that we have for you is where can folks find you, right? Um, your Instagram, social, like that kind of stuff. Yeah. How can 
Sure. Yeah. No, thanks for that. Yeah. So um, you can, if you want to email me directly, it's peter at docrelated.com. That's doc-related.com. I have my own website for those of you that are, you know, um, like to read my comics. It's www.doc-related.com. Right. And um, um, you can also hit me up on Instagram and uh, Twitter. And I should know those off the top of my head, but I will send them to you. Yeah. <laughs> they're all doc related. Underscore I can't related. Remember if they're underscore or if they're not. It's underscore. It's an underscore. Doc underscore related. I'm pretty sure. Right, but we'll link cool. it. We'll link it. Thanks, Josh. Hey, it's, and it's Peter, real quick. Cool. Yeah, it's that, uh, you know, I, I, I'm older, man. My Alzheimer's is kicking in. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, I don't know the ICD-10 code for that, but uh, real quick, real quick for you. Uh, are you drinking your wife's wine there? Actually, no. This is a Pinot Noir, but thanks for saying that. Yeah, my wife yeah. makes a rosé and a sparkling rosé. Yeah, she's, sparkling rosé. Okay. Yeah, we've been. Uh, gotcha. Me and my wife have been really getting into rosé actually lately. So, what is? Oh, really? I, I need oh, to get. Yeah, yeah. You'll, you'll love her. She's got a website. It's WooGirlSellers.com. Her label is okay. Yeah. So W-O-O Girl Sellers. Okay. I'll definitely we'll check that out. Yeah, cool. Yeah, out. absolutely. Definitely. Hey, guys. This cool, is Peter. fun. I appreciate you guys hey. having me on. The time flew by, and, and thank you so much. Hey, thank I you. appreciate man. you, man. Thank you. Okay. All right. I really hope that episode was enjoyable just as much was for Altamash and I. Uh, going back and reminiscing on that episode and really just taking it in again really, really makes me wonder about how much healthcare can change. You know, I really do believe we're one of the industries that just continues to lag behind while there's so many industries that are moving on with AI and looking at systemic change. Medicine is somewhat in this bubble that's looking to burst and it could be exciting to see what it could evolve into, um, but at the same time, scary, because it just seems like there really is no direction at times. And as physicians, the ones with the knowledge to really take care of patients, which is why we have hospitals and clinics in the first place, um, aren't the ones steadying the ship again. Uh, if you enjoyed this, please take the time to rate and review this podcast. Every rating, every review helps us. It helps get the episodes out there to others like you who might enjoy these types of talks. And again, as our disclaimer, everything in this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, and we are not providing medical advice. No physician-patient relationship is formed, and anything discussed in this podcast does not represent the views of our employers. We recommend that you seek the guidance of your personal physician regarding any specific health-related issues. And lastly, just want to thank our team, Harita Yepuri and Ethan Ju. We'll see you next week. <laughs>